Well, good morning again, everybody. Um, I just want to say, if you are not following Greenhouse on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you need to do it just so you can see the video that was posted last night of Jason. Um, you, you need to watch it. It'll give you new insight into the man he really is. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> uh, so... Some of you know, um, for a lot of years, I was a manager for Starbucks. I was just until recently. I started working for Starbucks back in 2013, and then in uh, 2015, I became a manager. So when, when I accepted the, the position of manager, I, I was going from being a, a shift supervisor in a small cafe store. It was just a, a little cafe over in American Fork. didn't have a drive through It was just a little small place. It was actually one of the first Starbucks in Utah County. Um, and then I was going to be going from that to managing um, a drive through store that was going to be about twice as busy, about twice as much um, volume. So it was, a, it was a big transition. And so because of that, I had to go through some training and I had to learn what the basics of managing was going to look like. Um, I knew that I was going to have to recruit and hire people. I was going to make schedules. I was going to organize and order the inventory. I would oversee all of the employees that were working for me. And, and given all of that knowledge and the training I'd gone through, I accepted Starbucks' offer to be a manager for a brand new store they were opening in Orem back in 2015, like I said. So basically what they had done is they had challenged me um, to run a business, and I said, yes, I want to do this. But then I started actually doing the job and getting to know the company that I was working for from a different perspective, working with my employees, I was hiring new people, I was becoming acquainted, uh, acquainted with all of the regular customers that were coming into my store, um, and I learned that there's a lot more to this job than what I originally thought when I was just going through training. I needed, first of all, to actually get to know my partners. That's what we call employees, we call them partners. Um, I needed to help those partners grow in their role. I needed to help them improve in their job and, and even help them move to the next level if that's what they wanted to do. If they were a barista and they wanted to become a shift supervisor or if they were a shift supervisor who was looking at becoming a manager, part of my job was to help them get ready for that next thing. Um, I needed to provide opportunities in whatever they were doing so that they could grow in the position they were in. And then for our customers, I, I had to, like, check things out and verify that my partners were giving a great experience to every customer. I had to make changes to the deployment and the routines that we used so that we could always be fast and we could be accurate and we could keep making connections with people. Um, a big responsibility that I had as a manager was monitoring the metrics, like how fast are we at the window? How many customers are we able to serve each day? What is our average ticket price? How is our inventory holding up as the business was growing faster than Starbucks expe expected? Um, and always, I had to make sure that we had the coverage that we needed on the floor to make partners be able to work more efficiently and for them not to feel stressed. So the biggest shift for me as I went from the theory of being a manager to the realization of being a manager was how much I needed to engage with my partners whether that was helping them do the work that they were asked to do or talking through difficulties, not just work difficulties, but sometimes it was their personal difficulties and things that were going on in their life. Um, I had to hold them accountable to the things that they were expected to do. I had to help them move forward to the next thing. And sometimes, as much as I hated it, I had to let people go because they couldn't meet the job requirements. Sometimes it was even just they couldn't show up on time consistently. And that was hard for me 
because I wanted to be kind to everyone, but I had to think about what's going on with my whole team and how are individuals impacting everyone, and so what do I need to do that's gonna help this whole team be better? So I accepted a call to be a manager, but what that call entailed, the actual day-to-day, the living out of the job, the things that I'd been commissioned to do if I wanted my store to succeed, were, were different. They were more dynamic and, and much more um, relational than I realized. I accepted a call to manage, but I was commissioned to do a huge variety of things in order to fulfill the call that Starbucks had given me. So, okay, we're going to be looking in Matthew today. We've been doing the study of Matthew for several weeks now, and we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. And what we're going to see today as we dig into this passage is Jesus is both calling and commissioning his disciples. Just like I had to learn the difference between the idea of being a manager and living out being a manager Jesus is going to specifically challenge 12 of his followers to to step up. And then he's going to make clear to them both what the call looks like, and then he's going to commission them or send them out into the community around them. So as we study this together, what I'm hoping that we can glean are some principles, um, how Jesus both calls and commissions us to represent him in our community, and how we can learn better what it means to follow Jesus and then also be his voice, his hands, his compassion, his truth in the places where he's put us. So our, our big idea today, it's there on, on your, uh, your paper that's there on your seat. The big idea is that Jesus calls us to follow and know him more. He commissions us to be his representatives to those around us. So that's kind of like the overarching theme about what we're going to be talking about today. Okay, so we're going to start by looking um, in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start down in verse 35. So if you've got your Bibles or if you've got your Bible app or it's going to be up on the screen, we can read it together. It says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Okay, so uh, two weeks ago, Jason led us through the first part of this, chapter 9, where we saw Jesus, he's been traveling around, he's been healing people, he's been teaching about what life in the kingdom looks like. And Jesus has been giving his listeners this, uh, like a new way to look at the world. He's been opening their eyes to freedom from the law, learning what it means to follow him, um, to live in a way that puts other people first and, and truly honors our creator God. Now, has all of this stuff that Jesus has been doing been easy? No. Have people misunderstood him? Yes. Have the religious leaders felt threatened and have they resisted Jesus? Definitely. We've seen all of that happening as we've looked from the beginning of Matthew. But Jesus, he's not deterred by any of that. And he's also not overwhelmed by it. See, if it was me, if I was going through all of that, the resistance, 
the misunderstanding, the, the people talking about me behind my back, even my own followers not always getting what I was saying. If that was me, I'd be frustrated, I'd be overwhelmed, and I'd be ready to give up. But that's not Jesus. This passage we just read says he had compassion on the crowds because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep who needed a shepherd. Jesus sees all these people who misconstrue him. He sees people who plot against him. He sees people who come begging for healing, for provision, for for him to do something miraculous for them. And instead of getting overwhelmed, Jesus gets compassionate. He, He loves these crowds that he sees. He sees their need. And so instead of giving up, he says to his followers, it's like a harvest. There is a big old crop that's just waiting to be brought in, but there's not enough people to tend to this huge crop. So we need to pray. We need to ask God to send some workers into this harvest. We need God to send faithful people to come help out all of these shepherdless sheep. It's not overwhelming to Jesus. It's motivating. There's a need, so let's do something about it. And then as we get to chapter 10, we're going to see that Jesus doesn't just see a need, say a prayer, and hope for the best, Jesus takes action. He says, we need workers for the harvest? Okay, I'm going to recruit, I'm going to challenge some people to be those workers. Let's do this. So now let's look at chapter 10 and see what, he, what happens next. So starting in verse 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. And we're going to be looking at this whole passage, but I'm going to stop here for a minute before we dig into all the things the disciples were being challenged to do. First of all, what we're seeing here is kind of a clarification of who Jesus' 12 disciples were. Now, there's a whole group of people that have been following Jesus or, or maybe coming to join him as he would come into a town and they'd hang out with him while he was there. There were a lot of people that were just really excited to hear Jesus. They'd heard about him. They were inspired by his teaching. They were curious about this guy they'd heard about. And maybe they were even wondering, could this guy be the Messiah who's going to throw off the tyranny of Rome and he's going to lead Israel as our new king? So there's this large, large group of people who are followers of Jesus to some extent, people who are interested enough to come listen to him, come to him for help, maybe even follow him around from town to town. Now, a little side note for context. Um, in, In first century Jewish culture, there were men who knew the scriptures and studied them and passed down their wisdom to others. They were called rabbis. If you were intrigued by a rabbi, if you liked his teaching, if you thought he had some wisdom that you wanted to learn from, you could choose to follow this rabbi. 
You could choose to be his student, devote yourself to him. That rabbi would then put some expectations on you. He would study with you. He would give you challenges. He would lead you in discussions. He'd help you dig deeper into the word of God. And he would expect that you would do the things he asked, especially in regards to studying the law and that you were going to be his servant and you were going to be devoted to him. And if you didn't do those things, then he would ask you not to be his follower. Now with Jesus, we see something a little bit different. There's lots of people following him, like we just talked about, and these people are viewing him as a rabbi, someone to be learned from, someone that they could emulate. But Jesus approaches discipleship differently than the rabbis of his day. Jesus chose his disciples. From among all the people that were following him, people that were interested in him, Jesus challenges 12 of them to be his disciples. He gives them an opportunity. He says, join with me. Be part of this discipleship community I'm creating. I'm calling you to be a worker in the harvest. The the list of apostles that we see there is a clarifying list of who they are. This isn't like at this moment Jesus is calling these 12. This is just saying these are the ones he called. We've already seen in previous chapters that he started calling disciples. We've seen that happen. Um, But what he's calling them to do is to learn from him, um, to learn about God's kingdom, and, and to realize what living in that kingdom is like. But they have a choice. He's calling them. He's challenging them. But they have to choose, yes, I want to follow you. I want you to be my rabbi, my teacher. I'm going to devote myself to you. Jesus' call is an offer. It's not an obligation. He's not saying, do this or else. It's, it's a, like a volunteer position, okay? Even as he chooses them, even as he chooses us, it's not conscription into service. It's volunteering. And unlike the other rabbis of his day, Jesus doesn't expect them to serve him. In fact, we've already seen, and we're going to continue to see throughout the book of Matthew, that instead, Jesus serves his disciples. He's modeling, once again, what life in his kingdom is like. Leaders who serve and followers who are served. The other thing that we see in this list of disciples is what a strange, unique community it is. You have a group of people who would not naturally join together in anything. They're from different walks of life. They're different vocations. They come from different backgrounds. The only thing they have in common is that they were all Jewish. In fact, you even see in this group of people mortal enemies. It says that Matthew is a tax collector, and last or two weeks ago, Jason made it really clear to us what the Jews thought of a tax collector. They were a betrayer of their culture. They were, they were basically just traitors. They did not have any respect for tax collectors. Um, so that's how, they, that's how the culture views Matthew. And then it also says that we have Simon the Zealot. And that's not just a description. They're not saying Simon is a guy who's really passionate about politics or art or religion. No, Simon was a zealot. He was part of a group that was plotting for the overthrow of the Roman government, a group that was working to reestablish Jewish autonomy. He, he was a fighter. He was a lay soldier who'd been part of a large organization working to remove Rome from power and put Israel back. There is no place in Jewish society where these two people, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, would ever spend time together. 
Zealots hated tax collectors. They wanted to kill them. And tax collectors feared for their lives due to the zealots. These two people are mortal enemies, but here we see them in community together. They are choosing to be part of this kingdom that Jesus is establishing. So what we're seeing here is discipleship and community the way Jesus intends. He calls us, just like he called the twelve, he challenges us to follow him, to take up our cross, to view ourselves as dead, to surrender our lives to him and his kingdom. Jesus calls us to join him, and he puts us together with people we might not otherwise ever come alongside. I mean, think about our, our community just here in this room. There's probably people here that you wouldn't get to know or, or wouldn't have gotten close to because you don't have a ton in common except for your common interest in Jesus. The thing that binds us together is our, our, our common pursuit, our, our, our curiosity about Jesus and what he says. That's what makes our community. Apart from Jesus, I, I don't know that I would likely get to know some of you. We might not have places where our lives would cross and where we'd have a chance to connect with each other. But because we're in this place, we have a common pursuit of Jesus, a common desire to know more about him, we also find out other things about each other, and we get to know each other, and we become friends, and we find some other things that we have in common. But Jesus is like the glue that binds us together. So Jesus calls his disciples, he calls us, but he doesn't stop there. He also commissions them. He commissions us. Now, a commissioning is just a sending out. It's a direction to, to do something. And that word that was listed there, uh, it said, these are the 12 apostles. That's not just a synonym for disciple. It's, it's like an extension. A, a disciple learns at the feet of the master, but an apostle goes out. He goes out to represent the master. And for the rest of this chapter, Jesus describes to his apostles, to his sent out ones, what they're being commissioned to do and what that commission is going to look like. So we're going to look at verse 5 again, and then we're going to read down to verse 15 to see the first thing that Jesus uh, kind of challenges them with. Okay, so these 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. <clears throat> But go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter... Search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. All right, so Jesus is, is getting real here, and he's telling them, who they're going to go to talk to, how they're going to do this thing, and then what they're going to do. He gives them three things, who, how, and what. First, who. He says, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, go to Israel. Okay, so just for clarification, Gentiles was anyone who was a non-Jew, 
And Samaritans were viewed by the Jewish people as mixed race. They were part Jewish and they thought part heathen. But Samaritans were still worshipers of the one true God and they had a very distinct, um, dif a different view of the law, of the Torah, of worship and a whole list of other things compared to what Israel did. The Gentiles had no regard for the law. They had no context for it. Often Gentiles didn't even acknowledge or know the God of Israel. So, when Jesus is saying to his apostles, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, he's not saying it because he doesn't care about Gentiles and Samaritans. In fact, we see in other parts of Matthew and in other Gospels that he specifically does care. He interacts with and he befriends and he leans into people of all faiths, all cultures, all communities. So what Jesus is doing is he's sending his disciples out to the people they know. They, they understand how their fellow Jews think. They know where they're coming from. They have an entire culture and religion that gives them a common starting point. So he's telling his, his apostles for now, right now at this point, go where you live. Go to your people. That's what he's telling us to. Go to your people. Go, go to your friends. Go to your co-workers. Go where you know and where you are known. That's where you should start. Now later, he's going to tell his disciples to go everywhere to go to everyone. But for now, Jesus is keeping it close for their sake. He's saying, start with what you know with the connections that you already have. How are they supposed to do this? Well, they're supposed to do it by relying on each other, by depending on the community of people who are part of the kingdom Jesus is establishing. All those verses from 9 to 15 are about this. He tells his, his disciples to find people who will welcome them in, people who are open to Jesus, people who are open to his message, the news of his kingdom. When he says, find a worthy person, a deserving home, he's not promoting favoritism. He's talking about the community of believers. Find people who understand what I'm doing, who are part of this thing that we're building. Stay with them. Is it because they're better than other people? No. It's because Jesus knows his apostles, these ones who are being sent out, they're going to need some rest. They're going to need downtime. They're going to need to be with people who get them, who understand what they're doing. And also, he wants to prevent his followers from being tempted or swayed to find someone of prestige who's going to treat them better. Oh, well, I like this place a little better. I want to try this house next. Instead, instead of following after a better option, he's saying, I want you to be able to do the work of the kingdom, and I want you to have like-minded friends to stay with, so you'll have people to encourage you, to support you, while you're spreading the news and doing the work of the kingdom that I'm calling you to. And, I mean, isn't that one of the ways greenhouse functions for us? I mean, it can feel lonely sometimes out in the world. Like, I'm the only one who thinks the way I do. Like, I'm the only one who believes that God's word matters. That following Jesus is, is a worthwhile pursuit. That living for him is its own reward. But when I get together with you all, when, when I go to our connect group, or when I meet with other guys on Friday morning, I realize, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm not alone. There's other people that are pursuing Jesus. There's other people who, who want to tell other people about him. They want other people to know Jesus the way we know him. There's people who get me. I'm not alone. So Jesus has told them who they're going to go to. He's told them how they're going to do it by being in community. But what exactly is Jesus calling them and us to do? 
Well, in simple terms, he says, you're going to tell and you're going to do. You're going to tell people about me. You're going to tell them what you've learned. You're going to tell them what God's kingdom looks like. And then you're going to show them what life in my kingdom looks like. He said, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Bring healing, bring life, bring freedom. Jesus says, that's what I've given you. I've given you healing and life and freedom. Now, bring that to other people. Have I healed you emotionally, mentally, physically? Have you been set free from something? Legalism, addiction, people-pleasing, insecurity, the need to perform? Okay, you've received that freely. No obligation. Now, give that to other people the same way. Take what I've given you. Offer that to your friends. Tell them what I've done for you because I'm offering the very same thing for them. That's what my kingdom is about. Tell them about me. Offer to them all the things I've offered to you. So, now that Jesus has made clear who they're being sent to, how they'll do it, and what they're going to do, he spends the rest of this chapter talking about two things. The opposition that they should expect and their responsibility to represent him and what they say and do. So first, we're going to look at the opposition. We're going to read verses 16 to 20, and then we're going to skip down to uh, 28 to 31. Starting in verse 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Then down to verse 28. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Jesus says, what you're doing, it's going to be difficult at times. You are sheep amongst wolves. Be wise. Know your audience. But just as Jesus isn't overwhelmed by the sheer volume of need, by the depth of pain in humanity, he tells his followers, he tells us, don't worry, my spirit lives inside you. The very creator of the universe dwells in you, and he will speak, he will give you words when you aren't sure what to say. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. And Jesus says, I've got this. That's the very reason he's given us Holy Spirit to dwell in us. I mean, Jesus isn't dismissive of the pain and the hurt that we go through, of the um, emotional turmoil that we experience because of our faith. He's not dismissive. He's realistic. And he encourages us to know our faith, to know him, to know what we believe, and to share what he's done for us with the people around us that we care about, to be his hands doing his work in the world, but trust him. Know him well, and then trust him to be with us, to guide us, uh, to give us words, to show us actions we should take, to lead us to people who need his touch and his influence. Expect opposition, yes, because his kingdom goes against the cultural grain, but don't be discouraged 
by that opposition. Trust him and know that he cares for you and that there's no reason to be afraid. If we have eyes on the situation and the circumstances, that's going to cause fear. But eyes on him and his truth, that's going to bring peace. And then he reminds them, and us again, that opposition can come from places that we usually think of as safe. Look at verses 21 to 23. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Just like he said back in verse 18 that the religious and political leaders are going to challenge you, he reminds us here that even our families can be resistant. Jesus' words, they can be divisive, right? Forgive as you've been forgiven. What you think shows your true heart more than your actions show your true heart. Take up your cross. View yourself as dead. Surrender to me. All of those are not easy ideas to take in, and and it can cause strife, even with people that are close to us. But Jesus reminds them, he's reminding us that he's present, and again, find the community where you belong. Find comfort from your fellow Jesus followers, and don't give up. So his last encouragement as we face opposition is going to be in verses 24 to 27 and then 32 to 39. This is kind of a long passage. Starting in verse 24, the student is not above the teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Whoever acknowledges this, sorry, this is verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. There's, there's a lot of deep stuff here. I'm just going to try to give us an overview of this, all right? He's reminding us that he's faced opposition. He knows what's coming at the end. He knows his death is going to be the end of this. He knows where it's going to lead, and he says, the student isn't above the teacher. If I've faced difficulty, if I've faced hardship, so will you. It's like an acknowledgement. I've encouraged you to be like me in the way that you live your life, in the way that you view God, in the way you treat others. You're also going to have to be like me in the way people treat you. But he ends it with encouragement. Yes, my message can be divisive. My call can be a wedge sometimes, but you are mine. You're a child in my kingdom. I didn't come to make your life easy. I came to bring something entirely new. Forgiveness that can't be revoked. Love that will not end. Peace that can't be shattered. Wholeness that can't be broken. Even if from the world's perspective you are losing your life, you're not. You've actually found it. So take up that cross. Put to death your own stubborn will 
Kill your need to be exalted or lauded. Surrender your desire to get what you want no matter what and follow me instead. Find real life by choosing to give your life to me. Jesus is real with us. Following him isn't always easy. There's going to be opposition at times, but we're his. He's always with us. He's speaking in us and through us. And an alliance with him is far greater than anything we can create for ourselves. And in the midst of that, he gives the apostles and us one final instruction. Remember, you represent me. You're not going out and giving your message. I'm not telling others about the kingdom of rich. You're not spreading the good news about the kingdom of Becca. We're we're telling people about and doing the work of Jesus. So we're going to read these last verses of the chapter, starting at verse 40. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. If anyone gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. You are my representative. What's done to you is done to me. What's done by you is done by me. Don't miss this. We are the Jesus that people see. Our words, our actions, those things we say and do, that's Jesus to the world around us. That's why I think it's so important that we not let our personal views and beliefs, our opinions, be the thing we're known for instead of letting Jesus be what we're known for. We can't tie the church, the very community of Jesus, to a political system. Because Jesus didn't. He didn't speak out against Rome. He didn't fight for the political independence of Israel. The only time Jesus spoke out against leadership was religious leadership. When he appears before the governor or the king, he actually submits to their authority. And he encouraged Israel to follow all the Roman laws that were put upon them. But religious leaders exerting spiritual authority, placing unmeetable expectations in the name of godliness, Jesus didn't have any patience for that. Why? Because when those leaders spoke, they were allegedly speaking for God. And Jesus knew they were not communicating the grace of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God. They were the very representation of God to the people, but they weren't representing him well. So he challenges us, remember, you represent me. Say what I would say. Do what I would do. If these harassed and downcast sheep are going to turn to me as their shepherd, they need to know what kind of shepherd I am. A shepherd who loves them, a shepherd who offers healing and wholeness, a shepherd who looks for even one sheep that's lost, a humble servant who takes the needs of the sheep into account. As the disciples were sent out to spread the news of this radically different kingdom, they were, and we are, representatives of the king. Our words and our actions directly reflect on the king who sent us. Think about an ambassador. We all know what an ambassador is. There's somebody who goes to another country and they represent our country to that country. If the U.S. ambassador to Peru starts doing and saying things that aren't in line with what our government has asked him to say, 
That's a problem, right? Because as far as Peru is concerned, that ambassador is the U.S. government. He represents them. If he or she can't speak and act in a way that represents our government's interest, that ambassador is going to be let go and replaced with someone who will represent the U.S. interests. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is watching us and waiting to fire us as his disciples, okay? That's not how Jesus' kingdom works. For better or worse, Jesus uses flawed people, you and me and Peter and James and John and and Judas, to represent him to the world. And because his kingdom is infused with love and grace, he doesn't give up on us when we represent him poorly. I mean, the consequences are still there. If we misrepresent him, if the people that, if the Jesus that people see in us is, is harsh or unforgiving or, or condemning or judgmental, then those people start to believe, oh, that must be what Jesus is. And he's not, right? He's never been that way with us. He's, he's patient. He's relentless. He gives even when we don't respond or reciprocate. He pursues us even when we're walking the other way. He is the good shepherd, the true friend, the companion through the flood and the fire, the teacher who guides and instructs us, the mentor who comes and works alongside us. And that's what Jesus is, is challenging us to be, what he's commissioning us to be to the community he, spends us, he sends us into. We represent him. So, as we wrap all of this up, and, and I acknowledge there is way more in this passage than, than we got to in, in 30 minutes. But as we wrap this up, what are we supposed to do with all this? What do we do with the call and the commission? I would say the first thing is, have you responded to the call of Jesus? He's challenging us to follow him, to surrender to him. And, and if you've been paying attention at all as we've been going through Matthew, you've heard this constant theme of surrendering to Jesus. He's offering us a relationship where we're his disciples, where we're learning from him, where we get to know him better, and we live out the principles of his kingdom. So have, have you accepted his call, his call to volunteer to be his disciple? Second, how are you choosing to be more deeply involved in the community of believers that he's put you in? How have you chosen to be part of Greenhouse Community Church? That's our, that's our community here. It's not the only community, but it's our community. How, how are you plugged in to have a support system of like-minded family to support you, to challenge you, to encourage you, to, to cheer you on, to mourn with you? What do you need to do to further engage and find your people here to, uh, to lock arms with as we all grow to be disciples of Jesus? Is is there a step, something you need to do even this week to be more engaged with the people that he's put around you? Third, who's the people that God has placed in your life that Jesus wants to be a disciple? We're all in unique positions. We all have our own spheres of influence. You interact and, and around people that I don't. I do the same with people you don't even know. And I'm and I'm not asking you, neither is Jesus, to make any of your friends a project to make it your mission to bring them to Jesus. Nobody wants to be a project. We've all been in that where somebody thinks they're doing something for us. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. 
He doesn't treat us as a project. He doesn't want us to treat our friends as projects. But he is asking us to represent him, to be his voice, his touch, to be his compassion and his love and his mercy to the people that we already know and love around us. So who around you needs his love and his grace and his mercy flowing out from you? And that brings up the last thought. Am I representing him well? In my relationships, do people look at me? Do they look at the way I treat them, the things I say? Do they hear my response to their struggles and challenges and joys and think, if that's Jesus, I want more of that? Do people know more of Jesus because of me or are they pushed away from him because of me? Remember our big idea we talked about at the beginning. Jesus calls us to follow him and know him more. He commissions us to be his representatives to those around us. Now, I know we've covered a lot, and and if I haven't made it clear, let me say very clearly, there is no admonition here. We are not being graded on how well we represent Jesus, how well we respond to Jesus, how great a disciple we are, none of those things. The grace and love of God are big enough and powerful enough to overcome our weaknesses, our inadequacy, our fears, even our failures. I just know I want to dwell on the grace and love and mercy of Jesus so that that's what spills out of me. God has not dealt with me harshly, and I don't want to deal harshly with the people around me because I want everyone around me to know who Jesus really is. That's what we're called to do. Let's pray together. First of all, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for that endless grace. Thanks that you really do love us that much. Thank you that it, it doesn't stop, that you're merciful even when we don't deserve it, that your grace is bigger than all of the stuff that we do. I am I am glad that you called me. I am glad that you brought me to your truth. You showed me who you are and what you've done and why your death and resurrection matter. Um, and I am, I am overwhelmed at times, Jesus. There's times when I, I don't know what to do. I, don't, I feel like it's hopeless around me sometimes or that you, there's people you're, just, you're never going to get through to. Um, and st- I know I need your perspective. I know I need to remain focused on you. I need to be spending time with you. And I'm asking that for all of us. Remind us of the importance of our fellowship with you and our fellowship with each other. Let us find encouragement in that and then give us the, the strength and also the kindness and grace to be that way with the people around us. We, want, we really do want to love the world. We want to love people the way you do. And we don't always. I just acknowledge it. I mess up and... I am not the person you would be. But I want that. I want to represent you, and I want people to know who you are, come to you, learn what it means to follow you. I'm grateful, God. I I just, I, I love being here on Sundays. I love 
worshiping with these people. I'm grateful for the friendships I have here and the connections. I don't want to take that for granted. Um, but I also don't want to live in a bubble. I know you've put us into this community for a reason and you want your kingdom to spread. So we're asking for your power to do that and for our obedience to, to follow you where you're leading us. that as a sign that it's time to stop. <laughs> we love you, Jesus, in the name, your name we pray, amen.